You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Basically, we've been working our way through the book of Romans. We are in the middle of, yeah, the middle of chapter 10. And we find ourselves in verse 16. And that's primarily what we're going to deal with this morning. But if you would, uh, stand with me as we honor the reading of Scripture together. I want to read some more just to get some some context here. And I'm going to go all the way back to verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Let's stop there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, in the midst of an exciting chapter, we get to a difficult portion of reality that is that is painful and, and sad, but yet it's something that we need to talk about because it is here. Lord, we pray that as we deal with the painful reality of unbelief this morning, as we deal with, with your text, your word to us, Lord, we pray that, that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that, that he would come and, and do a, a tremendous work in our hearts and our minds, that we might be encouraged, exhorted, Lord, that our efforts in 
in evangelism and witness would be both encouraged and exalted because of your word to us here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. A long time ago now, there was a man who was chosen to follow a, a great leader. And the one that this man was being discipled by, this great leader, was a person of exemplary character. He was a, a wonderful theologian. Basically, by all accounts of this man, he was above reproach. This man learned from this guy for years. He was part of a group that had tremendous access to his great wisdom. He had access to his person for almost 24 hours a day. But as time passed, the man became disenchanted with his teacher. Actually, he betrayed him in one of the most and worst ways imaginable. And then after realizing the, the horrible nature of what he had done, he became very disappointed in himself. Led to severe depression and despair. And in the end, the man killed himself. Not a happy ending to the story. But as some of you have probably guessed by now, the man was Judas and the teacher was none other than Jesus Christ himself. We could look at that story of Jesus, Jesus and Judas and think that Judas was Jesus' failure. But that's not how Scripture paints the picture. I just bring that story up here at the onset to give us a much-needed perspective on verse 16 here in Romans chapter 10. I don't know how many evangelism books that, that you, you've read, but most of them focus on very positive elements. I'm sure we've all heard many stories about evangelism. And it isn't very often we hear stories about failures. I remember my evangelism professor in college a long time ago, giving some statistics about evangelism. And he said that if you share your faith with others, on an average, about one person in nine would respond positively in some way to the gospel. And I think the, the response of the class was, what? Uh, that's not a very high ratio. There, there should be something that we should do to be able to get that number up a little bit. Maybe a, a better presentation. Maybe we can be more knowledgeable and equipped to ask, answer questions. And the ideas just started rolling and the professor let us talk. But then the professor pointed out that we were missing the point. His point was about one in nine would Respond to the gospel. He was suggesting that this was actually a positive thing. That if we kept doing what we were commissioned to do, that people would come to faith. Say this professor is remotely correct, and it is one in, let's just say ten to make it easier, 
one in ten respond positively to the gospel. So often we hear stories, though, of what works. We're hearing of the, of the one and not the other nine. What did we do in that one instance that we should have done better in the others? What is it about that one person, that one encounter that we need to replicate if we're going to get more responses, more decisions, more baptisms, more whatever? These are questions that get asked when we see these kinds of statistics. What this professor was saying is that for people to come to faith, the first thing that we need to do is be in the business of sharing our faith. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul has just said in the book of Romans. Verses 14 and 15. How will people call on Jesus if they have not believed? And how are they to believe if they have not heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? I think the professor was emphasizing the last part there to us. You are sent people, so you need to go. And if you go, then people will respond. You can be sure that they won't respond if you don't go. If they don't hear. The reason that so many Christians have never seen another person come to faith is that they aren't actively sharing their faith. I mean, it's simple logic. The more you share your faith, the more people hear it. The more they hear it, the more they're going to respond. I mean, it, the end of verse 16. Sorry, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. People have to hear it. It has to be proclaimed to them or they will not come to faith. The answer to those questions, by the way, is rhetorical. They will not. But the sad reality is that even if we do have gospel conversations with people that we love and that we care about, and even if we do everything right in those situations, there will be those that do not come to faith. That's where Paul goes in verse 16. Even if we do that, even if we go and we share our faith with others, there will be those that do not come to faith. Just listen to the text one more time. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Some of us might think it's funny to speak in terms of obeying or being obedient to the gospel here, but I don't think it is. The, the idea isn't obedience to a command to earn, earn merit before God. What Paul is getting at here is the relationship between hearing and believing that he has already been speaking of in the preceding verses. In verse 16, Paul is simply saying that those who he has preached to Those who have heard the gospel, not all of them believed it. Another way of phrasing this could be 
to use the word accepted there. Accepted the gospel, but that word isn't without a problematic connotation as well, because we know that there is more to true saving faith than just accepting a message. There must be an element of, of trust involved. Well, a fiducia. It's more than just assenting or, or accepting or, or saying that, that we believe facts are true. There's trust and reliance here. The gospel message is a call to, to faith and repentance. And that is obeyed when God moves in a person's heart and they are regenerate, they are born again, and then they respond in that faith and repentance. So we know from our message on previous verses that one can only believe if they are regenerate. So it's right for Paul to say it this way. Not all have obeyed the gospel. In other words, even though there are those who have heard the gospel message, not all of them are regenerate as a result of that. That's the idea. For the Christian, though, unbelief is a very sad and painful reality. It is sad that we can share the gospel with people and they not respond to it. That they don't come to faith. It's sad and it's painful to know or not be sure of the fate of our loved ones. To know that if they continue the way that they are going, they're going to end up in a place that Jesus describes as weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where the torment does not end. And as sad and horrible it is is to to lose a a loved one or a, a child, to lose somebody that knows Jesus compared to somebody that doesn't, the comparison is hard. It is a painful reality. But we must know that it is a reality. This whole section in Romans exists in part because of the sad and painful nature of unbelief. Romans 9 and 10 both start out with, I am heartbroken over unbelief of these people. But notice in verse 16 that Paul makes it clear that not only is unbelief horribly sad, But it is a stark reality that there will be those that hear the gospel and they will reject it. Now one might be asking themselves, okay, this is true. I know it's true that Paul is speaking of this, this path, this, this reality of unbelief, but why would we spend so much time on this? This is why. Because the reality of unbelief is something in which we must acknowledge if we are not to become discouraged and ineffective in our evangelism efforts. Get that. The reality of unbelief is something that we must acknowledge if we are not to become discouraged and ineffective in our efforts of evangelism. We must take this subject of unbelief and hit it head on if we are going to pursue a gospel mission, a gospel mindset in our life. 
And I know it doesn't sound right. We are, we are saying that unbelief, we're, we're talking about unbelief and we're talking about how that reality ought to encourage our efforts in evangelism. Talking about unbelief would seem to be more discouraging than it would be encouraging. But I would suggest that just bear with us for a few minutes here and I think that we will show that this reality is something that we must acknowledge if we are to be encouraged in our efforts of gospel proclamation. The first thing that we need to do here, I think, is, is to be clear about, and we kind of, we kind of hinted at this at the beginning, but that is the, the use of the word failure. When I use the word failure, I'm thinking of that word from a human perspective. Sharing the truth, trying to convince others of the gospel, and still having them reject it. That's what I mean by failure. That's from our perspective. But it's something that God's servants have all experienced. Don't miss that. This is what Paul is reminding of us here. Not only have many of the Jews and Gentiles rejected Paul in his evangelistic efforts, but Paul quotes from Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 1, pointing out that people didn't believe him either. Isaiah preached his message and it wasn't believed. And then we could just start thinking of others in Scripture. Jeremiah, he preached his heart out, and nobody believed him. Paul's choice of quoting Isaiah 53.1 is important. We've noticed this before in our our text as as we've gone through, and Paul quotes from people that he doesn't just throw out Old Testament as proof texts, but there's more of a, a reason to why he quotes people. In fact, there would be a, a lot better texts that Paul could use to prove his point here. And if we had time, we'd look at some of them. But over and over in Scripture, we see that the prophets are preaching and they're not being believed. And I would suggest that Paul uses this quote for a specific reason. In fact, James Boyce uh, says that Paul here chooses this verse for at least three different reasons. First, he says that this text comes very close to a text that he just cited. If you remember, he just, he just quoted Isaiah 52 verse 7 in verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. That was positive. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I think Paul is doing here is reminding his readers that Isaiah 52 7 comes just eight verses before Isaiah 53 1. And that is, that the feet might be beautiful that bring good news. But even despite that, there still will be people that do not believe the message. This is what we mean when we say that Romans 10.16 paints unbelief as a sad reality. Second, Paul is highlighting here that Isaiah 53.1 is an introductory verse in a chapter that is all about the Messiah's suffering. There is a, a link here between the unbelief of the hearers and the content of the message. 
The people in Isaiah's time did not want to hear about a Messiah that would suffer and die. A Messiah that that dies isn't one that they were looking for, so they dismissed him. Who's going to believe this message? But isn't it true today that many of our pulpits are filled with preachers that tell us what we want to hear and what they think our felt needs are? One author put it this way, if we tell them that Jesus will give them treasure on earth rather than treasure in heaven, people will line up waiting to get in. If we tell them that Jesus will make them feel good rather than make them holy, people will clamor for the fix. If we tell them that Jesus died to cure them of their low self-esteem rather than their sins, they will pay for a glass cathedral. A lot of what we see today in the church comes from this kind of reasoning. And it works. Kind of depends on, I guess, what you mean by works. But if we want our churches to be mega in any sense of the word, this kind of thinking does it because giving sinful people what they want to hear is popular. Let me say this another way. Every message... Every time the the word is proclaimed rightly, it applies to every Christian. Some might say, are you sure, pastor? (laughs) There are passages of scripture that just don't apply to me. And I would say, are you sure? (laughs) All scriptures bear witness to Jesus, and Jesus applies to you. Also, It is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to work in you to illuminate Scripture and to apply those Scriptures. And how the Holy Spirit does that and works in you is beyond our comprehension in the moment. But the promise is clear that the proclaimed Word of God will not return void. So we can walk out and say, yeah, that didn't apply to me. It applied to so-and-so, but not to me. It wasn't really for me. And in that moment, what we are essentially saying is that we know best what our felt needs are. And when we get to that point, we need to be very careful. Because the Spirit of God knows us better than we know ourselves. This is why we primarily preach through books of the Bible. Because we trust that God works and applies the whole counsel of His Word. Not just select texts that the preacher thinks that you need to hear. Notice also that Paul uses this text in Isaiah 53.1 because it is a prophecy about preaching the gospel by the messengers of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is quoting from this text because he sees it as prophetic. He's seeing it as relating to his own circumstances and what he's facing. They're not believing Isaiah's message, but that's prophetic of them not believing my message here. And it must have been an encouragement to Paul. Not that somehow he welcomed unbelief or desired people not to believe. That's not what we're saying at all. But it must have been encouraging for Paul to know that this was happening in his life, that people were not trusting the, the word that was being proclaimed to them, and it's exactly what God said would happen. God told him to go and proclaim it, to be obedient. And he did that. 
But not only is this prophetic in the sense that Paul quoted from Isaiah to show that people would not believe the word of the gospel when it was proclaimed to them, but notice that this is also what Jesus said would happen too. Perhaps let's just look at that. If you would turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Let's just read that that parable. I'll start in the, the first verse there. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, The sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. Since they had not depth or soil, when the sun arose, they were scorched, and since they had not root, they were withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear it. It's important for us to understand the disciples didn't understand Jesus' parable. So Jesus explained it to them. The, the meaning of the parable here isn't something that we're just guessing at. Jesus later on in, in the chapter goes on and explains exactly what it meant for them. And you can go back and, and read that if you want. There's a farmer that sows seed. The seed is the gospel. And as he sows the seed, it lands on different kinds of soil. The seed that is snatched away by a bird is a picture of those who do not understand the message and from whom the devil comes and and snatches it away before they've had a chance to to believe it and he's grasped what they have started to, to believe anyway. The seed that is burned up on rocky ground represents those who seem to receive the gospel but who are soon turned away by troubles and persecutions that arise in life. The thorns are the cares of this world, its wealth. And some trade their souls for that. It's only on the seed that lands on the forest soil that sinks down deep, grows, and produces crop. You see what Jesus is saying here? That the sower, the one who shares the gospel, shares it with everyone. But it's only the one group that received the the word and it produces crop in them. It produces faith in them. It is only one group that will use, to use the the words of, of Paul, it is only the one soil that will obey the gospel. I think what this parable does then is really help us think about the kinds of people that we meet in our lives, that we come in contact with as we go through and we share our faith that do not believe the gospel. The first group in the parable that we meet are those people who are hard. They're hard. When I say this, I mean that there are people that are made hard by sin. They're being controlled by sin. It's an addiction. It's some vice In their life, the devil has very strong control over them. Think about it this way. We talk about the the, the problem in America often. 
Why is our country in such a, a state of, of decline spiritually? What do we need? The question might not be phrased exactly like that, but I think you get the picture. The answer to that question isn't that people need to hear the gospel. The answer is that people love their sin and have been hardened by it. So hardened that infanticide, for instance, seems like a perfectly perfectly acceptable legislation. The problem in America is that people love sin rather than God. And there are a lot of, and there are a lot of people in this category. Not just people that, that believe abortion is a, a valid option, but people that cling to any sin and therefore do not want the gospel because they know that in the gospel, they're going to have to turn from their vice. They love their vice. And I suppose there should be, could be some in this category here this morning. The category of the sinner who desires their sin and eagerly desires to take part in it. And if you're in that category, I grieve for you. But I will tell you this, that all hope for you is not lost. The offer of the gospel is still open to you. Paul tells the Ephesians that at one time, all of us were in this category. We were all dead in our sins before we embraced and obeyed the gospel. There is hope for you, but the sad part is that many will continue in their sin, continue to be hardened by it and hardened toward the gospel. Harry Ironside tells a story of a young English woman who was raised in a Christian home. She was offered the gospel many times, but she chose the the way of the world instead caused her father and mother a lot of pain, but still she would not embrace the gospel. She chose to to run with the wild crowd. She rejected the appeals that were made to her to to come to faith. One day, she found out she had a serious illness and would not live much longer. There was nothing the doctors could do for her. And, and she was sleeping one night and she awoke in a, in a panic. She had had a, a terrible dream. And her mother runs in and she asks her mother, what does Ezekiel 7, 8, and 9 say? Her mom says, what? She says, in a dream I was told that I must read those verses. Her mom found a Bible and read those verses to her. It says this, Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all of your abominations and my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Ironside, said that the girl sank back down into her pillow with a look of horror on her face. And within a few hours, she was dead. Some people might take that story lightly. And of course, it is a secondhand story, although I would guess that Harry Ironside would be pretty careful on the stories that he relays. But even if the story is not true, and I don't think there's really a reason to doubt it, 
But even if it's not true, the verses are in the Bible, and it is God himself who has spoken. Sin will be judged, and when sin hardens our hearts and we reject the offer of the gospel, it makes all of this even more sad, doesn't it? But not only are there hard people, but there are also shallow people. The second group of people that do not believe the gospel are, are shallow, represented by the, the rocky soil. And there are many shallow people today. We're surrounded by sa- shallow people. And sadly, we are very shallow ourselves in our thinking, our passions, in our life aspirations, shallow in our good deeds. I mean, think about it. We know that we should be more passionate about things. We know that we should be paying attention right now, but we're not. We're doing other things. Our minds are, are wondering. We're like, how can I keep my, my, my focus? <laughs> but let's just choose something else. Bible reading, for instance. When it, when it comes down to it, and we have time to read our Bibles, we often turn to something else, don't we? We turn on the TV, we watch a program on Netflix. The TV is the epitome of shallow. I mean, there are some things on TV that make us think. But for the most part... Whether it's fiction or nonfiction, whether it's a news program, real or fake, it's shallow. It takes us away from things that would be better served for doing. My point is that the shallow person is the person that doesn't have any root. There's nothing in there that's going to prepare them for trials. Everything is, is surface. Their Christian faith is surface. Their Bible knowledge is surface. Their theology is surface. Everything is shallow. It's right on the top. And when something comes along to sweep them away, there's nothing to hold them there. When trials and persecutions, anything difficult comes up or arises, they turn from the truth. Their understanding is shallow. There's no real root. Perhaps that's where you're at. Let me just offer you a simple piece of advice. The solution isn't to just have more passion. It isn't to have just more, to have more or deeper life aspirations. It isn't to go out and do noble things to make you feel better. The solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The solution is found in what he has done for you. Not what you can do to make yourself feel better. The solution to being shallow is to cultivate root. And that is only found in faith in Jesus Christ. There are those people who do not believe the gospel who are hard, who are shallow. But there's also those who are deceived. Now, when I say that there are those who are deceived, by that I mean they're deceived by the the cares of the world and by the lure of riches. These are represented by the thorny ground. Illustration of that is given in Mark chapter 10. There in verses 17 through 22, we're told of of one of Jesus' failures. Right, Humanly speaking, this was a, a failure of Jesus. 
There was a a rich young man who came up to him, a person who was a, a moral person, and who asked a really good question. What must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus listed some commands, and the man said that he had kept them from his youth. Jesus then got to the heart of the matter, what was really choking out the gospel of why he would not embrace new life. And Jesus said, you lack one thing. You need to go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And this man then, we are told, went away sad because he had great wealth. And of course, Jesus was sad too because it is very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's so much there to choke out the gospel. People see that in believing the gospel, they're going to be forced to to reorganize their life. They're going to be forced to to reorganize how we spend our money, what we find our pleasures in. And the gospel will. And for some, they weigh these things and they don't want anything interfering with how they spend their money and all of their pursuit of pleasures and all of those things. Can't follow Jesus because I'm, I'm rich, I'm wealthy. And Jesus says, I need to, I need to be willing to give it all away. I can't do that. I don't think we can leave the discussion here though. In fact, the way Paul speaks of this in Romans 10, 16 doesn't leave it here. He says, and listen to him carefully, not all obeyed the gospel, meaning that some did. Yes, there were a lot of hard, shallow, and deceived people that Paul came in contact with, but there was also some people that recognized their sin. They recognized their need for Jesus to save them and embraced the gospel. This is where the hope and encouragement in all of this comes in. Not all will reject the gospel message, but some will respond. Our task in all of this is to be the the feet that bring the good news. They are beautiful feet. Why are they beautiful? Not because everybody that hears the gospel will embrace the gospel, but because some will. Some will embrace it, and not all is going, are going to reject it. Like my professor said in, in college, don't be discouraged by the nine that don't respond to the gospel. Be encouraged that some will. Your task is to be the beautiful feet. And the question before you is, are you? Because if you are not, you can be sure. They won't hear the gospel. In Mark chapter 10, after Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, Jesus is talking with his disciples and he makes a comment to them. He says, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I've heard that verse explained away so many times. Camel, an eye of a needle there doesn't really mean the eye of a needle. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. The disciples then come back to Jesus and they say, well then, who can be saved? I mean, if, if a camel can go through the eye of a needle, can't go through an eye of a needle, then nobody can, nobody can get to heaven. They wouldn't have asked that if it were not impossible for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. (laughs) Who can be saved? 
The answer to that is that for man, things are impossible, but for God, nothing is impossible. Here's the point. Up to now, you might have been hardened by your sin. You might have been choosing your sin above God. You might have been loving your sin. You might have been so shallow that you wouldn't embrace the gospel. Perhaps you've been deceived by the lure of wealth and pleasure. And now you're willing to embrace Jesus Christ. All of us were in one or more of these groups at one time. Perhaps we didn't even know it. But we were all dead in our sins. But God takes those who are dead, makes them alive. And if you're sitting there here this morning, it's not too late for you. It's not too late to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. To trust in Him for your salvation. Perhaps you know people that fall into these categories. The takeaway here that it is not too late for them. But any day it could be. So the question is, is what are we going to do about it? We see people who are hardened by their sin, who are, who are shallow, who are being deceived. And we just sit back and watch? That's not the response that we see here. We can be sure that none of those will respond to the gospel if we do not share with them. But we can also be sure that some will respond to the gospel if we do. <laughs> Our job is to be the beautiful feet that bring the good news to people. And then we leave the results to God. That's, I think, the best definition of evangelism that I've ever heard. To share the gospel. To share the good news with people we come in contact with. And leave the results to God. He knows what He's doing. He's told us, not all will respond, but some will. Be encouraged. Take hope. Some will respond to you. Keep sharing. Keep being beautiful feet. They are beautiful because they bring the good news. Your job isn't results. Your job is to go and share and keep sharing because in that you can be sure that some people will come to faith. Isn't that encouraging? Tremendously encouraging. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, that we are encouraged to go and, and share our faith. We look at the, the world around us and we wonder, how could people who are so hardened by sin, who are so shallow and deceived, how could they ever come to faith? But you're in the business of taking people who are hard, who are shallow, who are, who are deceived, as all of us were at one time, and making them alive. With what is impossible for us, it's possible for you. Lord, and I pray that you lay people on our hearts and our, our minds. You don't give us rest until we share our faith with those people that we know. 
Lord, I thank you for the tremendous word here, the the confidence and the encouragement that we have. That our job is to be obedient. Our job is to be the messengers, to be the beautiful feet. Not all will respond, but some will by your grace and by your mercy. And I pray that we would have a part in that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.